Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates President Trump. You've seen these rally in, in Orlando. Did you yes. see as far as the eye could see? Lots of folks. I know it's not scientific, but he right. gets these huge rallies. He does? Now, if you add all, up all those people, it's probably, you know, 300,000 people, which is not a majority to win an election. But I think enthusiasm counts. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that in these polls, which are showing Biden ahead, mm-hmm. you know, like 10, 12 points and ahead in almost all the battleground states or most of them, when asked the question, are you better off than you were four years ago, 54% yes, 32% Absolutely. no. And Biden commented on that the other day, not exactly what his advisors would like, I think, and mm-hmm. said, well, if that's the way you feel, vote for him. <laughs> if you're running for president, don't tell a majority of people to vote for, for the, the other, other person, guy. Right. Right. He also said, I think, on the same day that he was running for the Senate, he would appreciate it. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> Can we just, when yeah. you're 77 and, and failing or fading, mm-hmm. it's never been said by a doctor or anyone else, well, he'll get older, so that'll make it better. Right. <laughs> well, no, There's only one direction on this. You're right. You're right. And, I mean, President Trump was down about just about this much in the polls also in 2016 yeah. and he ended up winning to everyone's surprise um you know and uh and again he's the only candidate of the two that people actually want to vote for because they support him not yeah. because they don't like the other guy yeah, that's right. and that is I, I think that that you know there's a lot to say that's for that great point and the other thing that encourages me <laughs> you know because i'm a trump supporter is uh one report came out and said vast majority of trump supporters don't answer polls yeah, okay. Because yep. they regard it as part of the fake right. news. <laughs> right. Oh, anyway, okay. Uh, well, we're already into it. Yeah. Um, we take an honest look at things and um, expose existential threats to America. We will be joined today by our friend, former colleague, Seth Liebson, mm-hmm. host of The Seth Liebson Show, her daily on KKNT, 960 AM in Phoenix. And daily Peloton user, apparently. Daily Peloton user. Mm-hmm. Let's ask him about that right off the yes. top. <laughs> Can I get sports stuff off my chest? <laughs> you wanted to ask me about the SEC. A lot of good football. Well, I sent you a text this past weekend about the Red River rivalry, the Texas-Oklahoma game. That's not the SEC. But the, No, that's not the SEC, but it was a great game. And then no, it, it wasn't. To, you don't think so? It's touch football. Well, yeah, no defense. But, I mean, they don't really play big, you know, defense in the Big 12. You know, anyway, but, I know, but, I, you know, they should play defense. That's what worries me about the SEC. Right, Mississippi Alabama game was like ninety five points. Yeah, that one we stayed up all night. By we, I mean me and seven year old Manny. We stayed up all night. Watching Sierra, your wife didn't stay up. Ah, uh, she was in the basement for half the game, looking on the phone on yeah. Facebook and Twitter, and yeah. then she went upstairs to watch. Mrs. Bennett will sit with me and say, <laughs> "Tell me when it's the end of the fourth quarter." <laughs> you mean when it's over? Yeah. Right. Uh, unless Carolina's playing. Carolina's played well. Yeah, you talk about a high scoring game. Yeah, I mean they. I think put up fifty six on Virginia Tech, right? But before we get to the SEC, I mean, did you see any of that Clemson? Absolutely. My Absolutely. Gosh. Trevor Lawrence. You 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 had it right on him early. I was wrong. You know, uh, the yeah. year that they won the championship game, I think during the season, I said, I just don't know if you can trust Trevor Lawrence to win a championship. I and they, he won one as they, a freshman. They could beat the Jets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they sure. are just – I mean, Carolina's good, but they're in the ACC. I don't know what happens. I, mean, I thought Miami was good. Yes. Looked like high school against college. And you're right. They probably are really good, except when they face Clemson. Clemson is unreal. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to the SEC. Yeah, uh, somebody put it this way. My two favorite comments about the SEC, one I like, one I don't like, but they're both accurate. first one is, in terms of scheduling and COVID, SEC was going to play football even if we're a nuclear winner. (laughs) Yes. second one is SEC is beginning to resemble the Big 12. Uh, No. The high score. But for Georgia, which keeps the score down. Yeah, uh, we'll find out this weekend. Mm-hmm. Alabama plays Georgia. Did you know that? Right, yes. Unusual scheduling. Well, there's two things. I mean, number one, these schools didn't have spring camp, you know. And when you look at some of the t- the the top-tier teams in the in the uh, SEC, like your Alabamas, like your LSU, they lost a lot of players to the pros. And so you've got to rebuild. And to not have the spring ball and the off-season training the way these coaches are used to having, they're not going to have these guys – ready to play for another three weeks. And then so you have spring ball, you've got fall practice, and you've got two or three games to start the season that are against lesser-tier opponents for the most part. You you have that time to get them ready to play. They didn't have that, and so they're jumping right into conference ball. Well, that's a long, complicated answer. I would make it simpler. Okay. But, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> 
uh, it takes longer for defense to get ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hardest part of football is uh, coaching a secondary coverage. It's just, you know, you think all the patterns and mm-hmm. all, all the ways that four people, you know, weak safety, strong safety, two cornerbacks are supposed mm-hmm. to cover, you know, three or four major receivers plus linebacker coverage on tight ends. That is complicated. Right. right. So people are going to run. You notice if you look at the weekly updates or summaries or, you know, game highlights, there's tons of plays where guys are just isolated. They're just off on their own. Mm-hmm. So so that. But we'll see. Um, I guess not this weekend, but the weekend after next, the Big Ten starts. Right. And I think in sometime in February or March. The, <laughs> the Pac-12. Pac- <laughs> Goodness gracious. Anyway, um, Pac-12 is timing its season to be around the time that all the ballots are counted <laughs> next June. <laughs> I'll tell you one other thing on sports. love to get your view of this. I was listening okay. to Jason Whitlock, really declining um, audience for NBA, and he thinks it has a lot to do with the China stuff, you know, the flirtations with China, mm-hmm. failure to condemn China for the Uyghurs and other mm-hmm. things. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. And here is Seth Liebson. So what is this? You're on Peloton every day? What is this? Yeah, I um, I uh, I got it for a gift last December, so I've been using it almost. Yeah, I am on it every day. It's a fabulous product. Somebody yeah, loves you. Was, yeah, or needed me to work out more and exercise. <laughs> I mean, it's not. <laughs> or someone needed to change me. Yeah, it's right. not forty nine ninety five, right? <laughs> it's not. It was a nice gift, and it was. It's a great product. I use it every single day. They figured out something different um, in how to do a workout, and. Uh, I, I just love it. I've, I've gotten a lot of friends to uh, buy them, too. They, uh, they love them equally. It's, it's a great product. Can you do it in such a way that it doesn't put pressure on your f- foot? I'll yeah, tell you why. I, I think I, so. I have a recumbent stepper, which I like a lot. Yeah. And I'm sitting. It's an elliptical. Yeah, I okay. Cause... I think so. Depending on how you pedal, you can pedal down or you can pedal you know, lifting up so oh, you could okay. accommodate yourself that way. It's a, it's a fabulous product. I can't say enough about it. It gives me, I will tell you, one of the greater gifts, ancillary gifts of it, is I do a lot of classic rock workouts and 80s and 70s rock workouts. It gives me a lot of bumper music ideas. It drives my producer nuts, but I've been loading up on bumper <laughs> music from suggestions through my Peloton workouts. Are you doing your show from your Peloton? I, no, that would be hard. That would be very labored. I yeah. take that. No. My uh, inside joke, my worry with you is that when you finished your workout, you'd say, "Well, that's it, folks." Yeah, and start <laughs> and start clicking your pen. You know? We. When we were doing the morning show, yeah. Bill Bennett's Morning in America, what Bill's referring to is, you know, you get up. Before God, at like two in the morning, God. to prepare for a six a.m. show, and sometimes you're tired and your brain does funny things. And one time, we finished a segment, and I thought the show was over, and I was just standing around making noises in the microphone. And Bill was looking at me and giving me some semaphores, like, "Oh, okay, we're still on the air." I just thought we were done. Yeah. We weren't done. <laughs> right. All right. Anyway, okay, that's uh, the down memory lane. So, um, how about those Cardinals? Oh man, don't get me started on the Cardinals. <laughs> okay, right. don't get me started. They're playing. They're playing pretty well. Anyway, um, okay, Seth, let's talk about uh, the world. I, I am uh, totally enchanted and impressed with Amy Coney Barrett. I just don't know what else to say. It's all been said. It's all been said, except perhaps maybe there's some kind of cultural aspect that hasn't been fully discussed. That's fine. Yet. Let's do that. I was thinking about that. Go ahead. Yeah, I figured you might be. I figured you might be. You know, her nomination brought out some of the best and some of the worst in our culture. Uh, Some of the worst, we heard a little bit about it um, in the hearings yesterday. Some of the professors who were condemning her, some of the academic uh, critical race theory professors who were condemning her for adopting children from other countries and children of other races, that, that, that was enough to make the stomach turn. But it exposed something, didn't it? It exposed something about the thinking of the left. 
Um, I think also the Democrats were scolded um, so much so the last time she was up for nomination to her Seventh Circuit seat on going after her religion so hard. They've been caught a little flat-footed this time, and they realize that dog isn't going to bark going right into an election. Dog's not going to hunt. So I think the dog will not hunt. Yeah, it's not. The dog will not hunt. Or is it bark or hunt? I believe it's hunt. We could do an hour on this. We could do emails. We'll get them. Go ahead. I'm sure it's but, hard, uh, but, but uh, yeah, yeah. There will be there will be there will be no the dog um, barking the, the, is Sherlock the, the, Holmes, but the yeah the dog that didn't bark right. But the Southern expression is that dog won't hunt. Okay, okay. I'll I'll adopt that. Or um, or where you live in Arizona, that scorpion won't bite. Yeah, the snake won't bite. Scorpion sting. Snakes bite. Ah, there, okay. I gotcha. All right, two for me, one for you. Go ahead. Yeah, I, two to one. <laughs> um, so uh, the religion thing has been interesting. The Democrats don't know how to do that. I've also been surprised that you don't hear about something from the Democrats in these nomination hearings, at, that you didn't also hear the dog that didn't bark at their Democratic convention, which was the issue of abortion. Not much, not like it used to be, not as you recall it with Kavanaugh or Thomas or Bork yeah. or even for that matter, Roberts and Alito, almost as if they have gone so far on this, um, on, on, on abortion policy that they now know the American people just won't take it anymore. So it's now Obamacare, the Affordable Health Care Act, which can I say one thing about that? One more thing want, about that that guest. I think is interesting. You're the guest. You're kind. Just Thank don't you. run into the hard think, break. Okay. Well, I think this is interesting about the Affordable Health Care Act. If you listen to the Democrats' question, her, particularly what you heard from Kamala Harris earlier in the week or Dick Durbin or, for that matter, Sheldon Whitehouse, it's as if they believe there is one piece of federal legislation that is so sacrosanct it should never become it should never come before the Supreme Court. That's 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 the conclusion of what they're saying, that this law should never be adjudged in front of the federal courts. And I think that's a really odd thing for them to say. If they believed it, by the way, and if they thought the American people would buy it, they could simply remove jurisdiction under Article 3 from the courts ever hearing Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act. They won't do it because they know the American people would never go for it. But that's the implication of what they're saying. There is one law so sacrosanct it should never go before the federal courts. By the way, that's a law no Republican voted for. That's what happens when you move in such a partisan direction. I think that's interesting. Well, I, the thing I was, uh, I've been saying, I was on the TV last night on it, is the arguments are heterologous of a different logic. They keep yeah. saying, you know, you're on this court to strike down the ACA. Well, she's no, she says no. But also, if it comes up, and it comes up to this court, and it comes up to this court with her on it, it won't be struck down because of, now let me get technical with you, Counselor, severability, which is the presumption, you know, the court generally takes the presumption, you correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, that a piece of legislation, you know, should be looked at favorably. You, you know, you don't, it's not a game of gotcha. You do everything you can to save the legislation, save the legislation. possible, basically. So yeah. you can mm-hmm. take out a piece of it, the penalty or, or, or whatever we're yeah. talking about here, uh, and, yeah. and save the rest of the legislation. Yeah, but what are the odds they'll do that? Well... I've read this three times now. Alito and Kavanaugh have already suggested severability, that the statute can be saved, even if they don't agree with it, by taking out the offending part and leaving the rest. So if you've got two conservatives who've already declared themselves on this, two plus four liberals is six. They've got a majority, even with Amy Coney Barrett uh, ruling the other way. I think that's a really good reading. Let me give you an alternate reading okay. that takes the Democrats' paranoia as seriously as they do. Let's assume they think every Republican appointee on the Supreme Court wants to strike down Obamacare. Thus, we shouldn't put Amy Barrett on the court. That leaves you with a 4-4 court. That means you're going to have no decision, no majority decision. That means the lower courts, which have struck it down, that's yeah. the case going before the Supreme Court, yeah. stays. Yeah. Yeah. The striking down of it stays. Yeah. So, I think yeah. they are so out of water on their logic that if anyone who could add one plus one to get two would see it for what it is, 
they would realize the Democrats are just so far yeah. from anything that could constitute constitutional law, much less logical thinking, that they're in real trouble here. Yeah. Uh, the, the, they, okay, let's put your point and my point together. Let's get this thing up to the Supreme Court because we got a more sympathetic hearing from Justices Alito and Kavanaugh than we got in a lot of That that may be what they're thinking. That may be what they're thinking, but it's not going to happen. She's going through. She's going to sail through, and she's probably going to be a hero to the to the originalist understanding of uh, constitutional interpretation that uh, Scalia was her uh, her teacher. That would be my guess. That's how I see it at this point. Yeah. Other thing is, uh, oh, I, I should mention just uh, as an aside. While we are talking, we can't engage uh, Claude because Claude is sitting here eating quesadillas, which were prepared for him, him, <laughs> not for me, by Mrs. Bennett and brought up with a napkin. And is there any condiment you would like on it? Right. So, so uh, this is the kind of thing that goes on around here. You're familiar with this. Uh, yeah, I, I'm familiar with it, but in the opposite direction. I never got that treatment when I was your producer from Mrs. Bennett, and now I'm a little resentful. Well, we were at a studio in Arlington, and that's not where I live. We're doing this from my house in an undisclosed location. It's not a bunker, but... Right. But you've been fed here, uh, Seth. I have <laughs> been, and but, you know, it's it's not early in the morning. Not early in the morning. Oh, we, well. never, we had to send... Uh, we had to send Beach, and they, they, they did runs to, oh, gosh, what was that great place? Oh, we had to we send. Oh, yeah. Uncle Ben's. Ben's Chili. Uncle Ben's. Uncle Ben's, Man, Ben's that. Ankle Ben's. That's the rice. <laughs> Ben's Chili Bowl well, was what, the name of the Ben's Chili Bowl. Ben's Chili Bowl. Yeah, You're Ben's stu- Chili Bowl. What are you, Uncle time. Ben? Are you still with Amos and Andy, too? What are we doing? <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you why it's on my mind, honestly. Um, it's on my mind because we're bringing Larry Elder out at the end of this month to talk about uh, about his movie, and I was continuing that. So anyway, there's a lot of this on my mind, but now that you brought food into it, I'm all confused. Is he coming on to talk about Relief Factor, which you tried to sell me before the Peloton? No, he's coming out to talk about another uncle, Uncle Tom, which is his documentary, which, by you. the way, okay. is fabulous. All right, good. Just no, I, Larry's very interesting and very smart guy. Even though we yeah, had this ridiculous yeah. argument about the, you remember that about cocaine and the CIA? Yeah, I think he gave up on that. I, I haven't I, heard yeah. him go there in a long time. I argued with him about that, but he's he's very good. He's he's very. I thought he was brilliant on this whole reparations thing. You know, you know who pays? Oh, he was fantastic. And I, and I guess fantastic. Kamala Harris has to pay because you know people. Jamaica were slave well, owners, yeah, so. I think the way Larry cast it, let me see how he put it. He says, if we do reparations, he says uh, Barack Obama's father was tied right. to the slave trade, was right. tied to the slave trade as his mother's family was tied to importation. Does So does Barack Obama get a check or does he write a check? And that's the kind of problem reparations policies presents us. It it it, it conf- it's again confusing all kinds of categories. Okay. Anyway, yeah. Um, to to also, I should mention this regard. I haven't read the whole thing yet, but it looks fascinating. Um, mention a name much uh, around these days: Scalia, uh, not Justice, but Son Gene, who is our Secretary of Labor, and as you will recall, was part of that speech writing team for me at Education when I was there. Uh, can you name other members of that speechwriting team? You had a classically great speechwriting team. There were two great teams, the greatest of teams in Washington. Yours was, uh, well, names we don't hear much anymore, but you had Checker Finn, you had Laura Ingram, you had Gene Scalia, you had the great John Cribb, uh, at the time, you also, uh, Pete Bueno was part of that group. And who am I missing? I'll who tell you who you're great? missing. Well, uh, somebody who was an intern but worked for me for a summer, Jeff Rosen. Peter Thiel, of course. And Peter Thiel. Team, mm-hmm. That son yeah. of a gun didn't yeah. give me a tip about PayPal or Facebook. <laughs> I he was know. buying up the stock I and didn't know. <laughs> Peter Dagon I know. Thiel. Yeah, no, we sit around these days and process our resentments this way, don't we? I do. But I'll tell you, can I talk about one other resentment? I almost brought this up on TV last night, but uh, because they asked me about Amy Coney, sitting there listening to 
Cruz interrogator. I think you know this story, but I was uh, I was interviewing Alan Dershowitz on the podcast, and he saw Bill Bennett, you know, my my brightest conservative student. Well, the very the very next morning, I saw him on Fox and Friends, and uh, he followed Ted Cruz, and he said, "I love listening to Ted." We didn't have a lot of conservative students at Harvard, but t- uh, Ted was there, and he was my brightest conservative student. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I called him up. I said, well, who's the, who was, you know, he said, oh, you're both, you know. <laughs> well, I was thinking of bright Ted Cruz yesterday and realizing when he was questioning Amy uh, Coney Barrett, he was at least second. <laughs> I mean, she was the smartest. That's exactly. You know, that, you she, know what's the so smartest funny. kid in the room. She is, by the way, talk about the culture. If I might interrupt you just for a second. Yeah. There's your, there's your feminist icon, which doesn't have to be constructed or made up. There, it, there's your model of a feminine, of a woman. My God. And you can do it all, apparently, at least if you have superpowers. Yeah, but the left doesn't know what to do with her. By the way, I made your exact point yesterday. I thought Ted Cruz, I said, you know, if I was about to say he was the smartest person in that room and he ended up probably being the second, boy, was he, did he eat his Wheaties yesterday, didn't he? Wasn't he fantastic? My gosh, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, but boy, he was, he was fantastic. And on the fly, also without. No, no, he is brilliant. That man. He is brilliant. Do you think he's smarter than Holly? I think Holly's really smart. I think you've got a hell of a team there. I think you've yeah. got a hell of a team. Um, yeah. And I got to tell you, I know also Ben Sass is of everyone's uh, cup of tea, but I thought on the first day he was fantastic as well. Yeah. I got to tell you, I played, of all the audio I played, I think his was the only senator's uh, statement I played. He was really good on the civics lesson. I'll tell you how really smart, but he hides it because it doesn't come out in a smart way, but is really smart seeing around corners is Lindsey Graham. He's a smart guy. I agree with that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, like you, I take a lot of criticisms uh, from some of our movement over him, but uh, oh, I sure. think on balance, uh, yeah, but I think on balance, yeah. he's someone you want in your corner, especially when it comes to a public argument. Top of your head, two most ridiculous things that were said yesterday. By the way, I kind of like, well, I, I don't know why, but yeah. that's my, my kind of odd, eccentric academic thing. I, I, I want to get mail on this. I, I'm, I kind of enjoy White House. He's just such a weird, he's, he's like a crazy professor, you know? I mean, I studied philosophy. He's like, he's got the style of a philosophy professor with Owen over here and a little bit of the Professor Irwin Corey, if you remember him, the, the crazy guy who was on the Carson show. But he's kind of entertaining with all his little charts and things falling to the ground and a certain it absolute. might be it might be our first it might be our first argument of the day or the week. I have to tell you, Bill, I, because when you asked what were the two most ridiculous? I was going to say Sheldon Whitehouse. I, I got to tell you, I think he's a nasty piece of work. I, I think I think he is a throat slitter. Yeah, I, and, I don't disagree. And, I just find him amusing, an amusing throat slitter. Well, yesterday I don't think was amusing. Serious. I'll tell you I don't think you he's that. got a lot of bite. I don't think he's got a lot of bite. No, but he is it's nasty. It's a dull knife. And he, it's a dull knife. Go ahead. He, he just makes you um, uncomfortable because he uh, yesterday, I mean, what were they calling it? They were calling it the beautiful mind theory, where he outlined, remind the audience, uh, he outlined a series of conservative legal organizations that have, heaven forfend, the tr- tried to persuade the public of original intent uh, interpretation. And that's what they hate, right? Let's make, let me make a serious point. That's what the Democrats hate. When the ACLU and Van Aaron's organization and the leadership conference, when they all go after Robert Bork or they all go after a conservative nominee, it took a while for conservatives to catch on and say, okay, as Robert Bork said, what's the difference between Brett Kavanaugh? Uh, what was the difference between conservatives who got uh, cleared and you didn't? He said, well, we now have conservative organizations to answer left wing organizations. Yeah. And as Ted Cruz pointed out, my gosh, the the left-wing organizations are still soaking in far more money than the conservative organizations. But that's the point. They only think one side should exist, the left, and that when we come up with uh, something to counter the ACLU or the Leadership Conference or the Alliance for Justice – they think that we are on the that, that 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 we're changing the rules of the game. Well, we are. We're answering them. They've been around a lot longer, and they've done a lot 
of corruption. And that was what was so brilliant about Ted Cruz on the fly was the recitation of how much more money the left pours in from anonymous donors than the right. All right. No, I, I understand. And I don't disagree with you about his intent is malicious and he intends to slit throats, but I think he's kind of a joke. I think it's a dull knife, but didn't get your answer because I interrupted you. Two most ridiculous. No, that was going to be one of them. Sheldon Sheldon Whitehouse was one answer. And And the the second, kind of what we were talking about earlier, is this notion over and over again, repeatedly, repeatedly, that there's one sacrosanct piece of legislation that can never be heard by a federal court, and that it's the Affordable Health Care Act or the or, or Obamacare, that this should never be in front of the court. That is the implication of what they're saying. The reason that they have problems with the Affordable Health Care Act, of course, is, remember, it, it got not a single Republican vote. They pushed it through as a partisan piece of legislation. In fact, Democrats voted against it. It was more bipart- It had more bipartisanship opposing it than favoring it. And this is where we're left, a highly unpopular piece of legislation that the Democrats are clinging on to for dear life. They never want to have put in front of a federal court. And I got to tell you, to me, that's the definition of near tyranny. I agree, but I was also surprised because, uh, you know, maybe I'm just naive on this, but I said, gee, you know, I saw they're loading the muskets here on, um, you know, on, on the Affordable Care Act. And I may, told you my own argument on this is it's pointless because it's going to, you know, if it goes to the court, it's going to, they're going to sever out that piece and maintain its constitutionality. But, you know, the, the yeah, way. I'm sure they will. But the way I mean, in which. It, don't strike down in total right. full pieces of but, legislation. But the way in which it crowded down. out Roe v. Wade, which, you know, I thought would be most of the emphasis, and it wasn't at all. And she kind of step forward on that, not disclosing your view, but saying it is not a super precedent. Uh, she cited the uh, super precedents, things that you'll never touch, like Marbury v. Madison, Brown versus Board. But, I, thought, I thought that was bold of her, I have yeah, to tell I, you. I, I, I gave her a lot of credit for that, and I noticed the Democrats didn't push back very hard. There's something very odd about this, isn't there? They didn't yeah. mention it once yeah. at the Democratic Convention. Not yeah. once. Yeah, what is that? Not even yeah. in, yeah, not even in the usual pseudonymous uh, woman's right to choose. It uh, never came up. I'll tell it you why. Didn't. It didn't. Ideologically and culturally, it's still, you know, near the top for them. But in terms of the election, um, you know, they, they weren't just talking about the Affordable Care Act. They were talking about millions of Americans losing their health care. I mean, this is all prime for the election. And there are risks to yeah. attacking, you know, the pro-life movement for an election. Very little risk in saying 50 million people are going to lose health care, which, of course, they're not. Well, Bill, I think you're right. And I think it's not only the extremism that Roe has led to that shocked so many Americans, that it's also, I thought it was a sign of the cultural times during the um, racial sensitivity um, protests, marches, and riots. We've seen that in the midst of that, Manhattan's Planned Parenthood took Margaret Sanger's name off their their building. And I thought, you know, that, that should have been or would have been big news. Um, I, I think the abortion rights movement is on its heels right now because of their extremism. Yeah. And I think that you're right that they're bringing up, um, mm-hmm. I think they're bringing up Obamacare. You're right as a way to get to health care, which is a way to get to health, which is a way to get to COVID. I think that's what they're doing. I want to go to, I want to go to COVID in a minute. Uh, but, uh, I'll tell you what I thought the two most ridiculous moments. One, Cory Booker looking at her and having have, having to notice her family behind her, asking her if she was a white supremacist. I mean, he's obviously making a point here about Trump, an unfair point about Trump. But, I mean, really. And then Maisie Hirono, who I think is on another planet, but saying, you know, have you ever sexually harassed anyone? <laughs> what? That was a disgrace. Yeah. That was a disgrace. Now, she prefaced it by saying, I ask this of every nominee. She could have yeah. done that in her private one-on-one meeting. There was yeah. no reason to yeah. plant that in public, in front of her family. Um, you're right to remind me of Cory Booker. I have a question about Cory Booker. Um, in the opening statements on Monday, he said he will not vote for her. He said, I will not vote for your confirmation. Why is he asking questions? Why is he asking questions if he's already made up his mind? The point of a hearing is to solicit answers to questions so you can help decide on how to vote. Save everyone the time. I think there should be a motion that with his decision already in hand, 
Let's just give the time to other senators. I don't get why he has a right to ask questions. To help others understand her view. That, that would be a, an argument. I suppose so, except he's not interested in her answers. He is using his time, as you pointed out yesterday, to say things like the president never denounced white yeah. supremacy. Yeah. My gosh. My gosh. They will okay. not. No, they, they will they, not give it up. Yeah. No. Anyway. No. COVID. So uh, I was on TV last night and I snuck it in. The World Health Organization uh, issued a proclamation saying terrible uh, consequences to, you know, what we did here. So we recommend against lockdowns. I said last night, hey, thanks very much. The numbers they cited or cited in support of their position. You and I did this a long time ago. We didn't have the numbers, but we predicted 150 million people thrown into poverty. $82 $82 trillion the cost of the lockdown. Millions of children denied inoculation, water, food. Uh, death toll much larger than the death toll worldwide from COVID. Now they tell us, oh, lockdown should be a last resort. Exactly right. The res- yeah, the COVID pandemic will turn out to be nothing compared to the response to the COVID pandemic. The immoral, ascientific response to the COVID pandemic. And just once, just once, and then we won't do it again. And when did we write this, you and I? March. You and I were at this as early as March. Yeah. Damn. We, we, wrote about, we wrote about seven columns, mostly published at Fox News. And, uh, boy, we took a lot of heat. But I guess sometimes the price of being right is appearing to be wrong at the time. It's okay. I'm glad we were there early and on it. We saw this. Well, we maybe saw this Rich Lowry at National Review will issue an apology for... Yeah, may, maybe he'll he'll either issue an apology or he'll write another col- column condemning the tens of thousands of medical experts and epidemiologists who have signed on to the Great Barrington statement. It's That's a great my statement, guess. isn't it? The Great Barrington. It's a great. It's. Yeah. I showed it to a doctor friend of mine, asking him if he would sign it. He said, "Not only will I sign it, I wish we did this a lot sooner." Uh, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Craziness now, the madness. I mean, it just. Uh... I miss, you know, where I live, you know, Montgomery County, Maryland. Mrs. Bennett talks about, you know, just taking her walk, her evening walk, and seeing a neighbor and, uh, you know, stepping out of her house, lays on the sidewalk and steps toward the neighbor, and the neighbor throws her arm out. Stop! Mm-hmm. She was a mm-hmm. good 40 feet away and wasn't going to get within 20, but stop. This is... Um, it's craziness, just total craziness. Anyway, it's a, it's, a, it's a social disruption based on an unnecessary and undue fear and panic with a dollop of some kind of homicidal fantasy uh, where people are wishing for the worst when, in fact, you look at the statistics and the statistics just show what should be confidence in our society. I mean, you run these numbers. I send you the testing numbers uh, every week. Tell them. The tell, tell the audience. Tell out. the audience. I don't report it very often. Well, the CDC puts out testing numbers, and you can crunch them. And what you're watching is the mortality rate going down each week as a percentage of deaths compared to positive tests. And you still end up at the end with a um, a, a mortality rate that leaves about a survival rate of 99.94%. Let me repeat that. A survival rate of 99.94%. This is what we have plunged the world into disaster for. Not not of all people, but of people who contract it. Which which is it? Yeah. Okay. Exactly right. Exactly right. So that when the president got it, his odds, given his age and weight and everything, was what, 97 or 98 yeah, and, 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 and the interesting thing about that is people express shock at how well he did, uh, and, 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 when you, and when you see how well he did, you shouldn't be shocked. I mean, this is what we are to expect. We are normal. to expect that most people, by a stretch of odds better than surviving skin cancer, you will be just fine. So then the left comes up with a talking point. Well, he's the president who got exquisite care. And I have to tell you, I have had callers call me and say, this is nonsense. I had that exact same regimen. This is what was done for me. And it was terrible for three days. And here I am and I'm fine. Um, 
this, this was, this was of course better care, no doubt for a president, but it was the same regimen a lot of people are getting. But if you simply look at the numbers, no one should be surprised. No one should be surprised that they were shows they're not looking at the numbers. They're just listening to the editorial page of the New York times. That's their science. You think Um, Trump will win, right? oh, Oh, I think he'll win. And, um, I was in a dinner. You would know most of the people I was with, uh, it was an off-the-record dinner of about 15 people, all smarter than me, very smart people. And they went around the room, and I, they asked for predictions, and they started with me. And I said, I think Trump wins, and I think he wins in bigger numbers than he did in 2016. Everyone in that room said, yes, if there's no fraud. Yes, that's true, if there's no fraud. So I'm kind of worried about that. And I'm worried about our country right now. I'm really worried about um, the kinds of divisions. I wasn't uh, kicking and cognizant in the 60s. Um, but from everything I read, Bill, um, you didn't have a Democratic Party that was so aligned with the left. Hubert Humphrey wasn't aligned with the left-wing street, street protests, marchers, the weathermen, the, under, the weather underground, SDS. That, to me, is a big difference. McGovern wasn't aligned with them. Uh, Mayor Daley, gosh knows, certainly wasn't aligned with them. That seems to me a different shift right now where you have, uh, where you actually do now have the Democratic Party aligned with the rioters. And I wonder if you think that's, that's an accurate reading of history or if you think it's something to be concerned about. Uh, well, I think it's both. Uh, I think it's accurate, and I think it's uh, very much to be concerned with. I th- I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I've certainly said on the podcast, our friend Alan Gelzo, who is uh, not at Gettysburg anymore, but he's at Princeton, I guess, now permanently, or the Witherspoon. Yeah, he's working with Robbie George, right, in that, in that, in that pro- program, yeah, Matt, James Madison Institute, yeah. uh, says uh, this is the worst cultural divide in America since the Civil War. When I put that proposition on another podcast to our mutual friend Brian Kennedy, who was never just going to give you, yes, I agree, I have nothing more to say, right? Said, yeah, right. it's actually worse. Worse? How could it be worse? He said, well, it's a, the, huge, the huge issue. It's the, the worst possible issue, slavery, over which the Civil War was fought. Remember you and I hashing that out with Bob Morrison yeah, as I was sure. writing my book? Sure, sure. No mistaking sure. that wasn't about states' rights. It was about slavery. But he said, but it was only about one issue, you know, enormous as it was. This cultural divide is about a whole lot of things. Northerners and Southerners may have interpreted the Bible differently, but they both swore by it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. Uh, in, in, they in both eight, prayed to the same God. Like in 1860, that, right? they organized their families the same way. Uh, they thought right. about the importance of history and, and revered the founders. Um, but, uh, the division now is on maybe almost everything. Um, I was was just taken, and and I don't mean to embarrass you. We always have fun with this on the sports thing, but uh, the the way in which the politics, you know, uh, affected the opening of the college football season, the Southern team said, we're playing. And, and the Ivy league said, we're not. And then the northern Midwest said, we're not. And then the far west, California, Oregon, and Washington said, absolutely not. And the Southwest Conference, Texas, et cetera, we were playing. Uh, talk about, you know, a cultural divide that goes from everything to, you know, family and faith to football. You know, Bill, maybe it's a result of us not getting uh, the Cardinals till much later. We had the Phoenix Suns, so I was always a little more oh, oriented toward it. the NBA. Oh, the stop NFL. it, Nest. What are we Somebody prepared this for you. What are you reading from? Well, no, I was just going to make the point that I think, you know, I don't know college football as well as I know the NBA. I don't know professional football as well as I know the NBA. And I think nothing has disgraced itself so much as the NBA, where they are consumed with um, apologizing and genuflecting over something that we ended 160 years ago in America, but have no problem engaging in supporting and covering up modern-day slavery in the Xinjiang province of China right now. It is one of the most disgusting moral collapses I have ever seen by an American institution. 
the NBA actually has basketball training camps in the heart of darkness in Xinjiang province where over 2 million people are held in slave camps right now as we speak. About that, they can and will say nothing. In fact, they are helping China cover it up in the worst form of what the Nazis did with concentration camps and Potemkin villages when the Red Cross in World War II would go to visit Poland and Nazi Germany. I think the NBA is a disgrace. And if I, just, I don't even know how they can show their heads right now in this country or have any kind of moral authority over anyone right now. I heard a report, I want to get the quote right, with the, an interview with the Dallas Mavericks owner, what's his name? Uh, Mark Cuban. Cuban. Mm-hmm. When he was asked about the Uyghurs and, you know, the, the concentration camps, uh, their equivalent in China, and his response was, hey, hey they're hey, their customers. Uh, can you get this exactly? I don't want to defame a guy sure. in the air. It was an this. interview with, that was true. He said, I have no problem doing business with China, their customers. You know, Houston, Daryl Morey, you know, what was his big crime a year ago? His big crime a year ago was stand was tweeting out, I stand with the protesters in Hong Kong. That was his crime for which he had to apologize. Or he was what, general manager of the Houston teams, is that right? Something like of that. the Rockets, yeah, Houston exactly. Rockets, right. And to have to apologize for standing up for people who are marching, singing the national anthem, and waving American flags because they think they know something more about us than I guess the rest of the NBA does, which won't stand for the national anthem, was a total moral collapse and disgrace. That's why I'm worried about this country, that kind of thing going on, which makes me think Ryan Kennedy may have it right over Alan Gelson. I was inclined to agree with Alan Gelson, but when you told me what Brian said, I think Brian has it, has, has it more starkly right. Yeah, um, someone very close to me said, before we invite them, to join us, you know, one of their politics. I said, oh, let's not do that. We can have friends on the other side. And the the people who were co-hosting the event said, you know, I used to believe that, but it now penetrates so much more than politics, political differences. Well, let's put our political differences aside and talk about other things. But the stuff is so infused, so many other things, it's hard to talk about anything. Yeah, it's not healthy. There's no safe space anymore yeah, from politics. There, it's intruded it. on. It. Yeah, it's really intruded on everything, and it's unfortunate. There's this interesting lecture C.S. Lewis gave uh, in the 30s, 1939, I think, and he talked about how politics should be thought of like medicine. Um, necessary when there's a problem, but not the common, not the common coin of every realm. Um, there is a sick society that uses politics to apply to every aspect of human life, is how he put it. And I think that's right, or at least I think we've seen the rightness of what he was worried about. Um, so that what happened with your wife, you know, that was apolitical, or should have been. But unfortunately, it was fueled by a political sentiment, which is uh, something that um, has created a great deal of separation and division in this country that I'm just, I'm very worried about it. These were co-hosts. This was a co-host's wife uh, or one of the co-hosts, not Mrs. Bennett. But Mrs. Bennett and I talked about it afterwards. Uh, You know, we just decided, well, politics doesn't have to come up, but doesn't have to come up in order for it to be suffused in everything that's discussed. Do you remember Amy, Amy wait, wait. Wax at the University of Pennsylvania? I got to tell you something right now. Yeah. I don't know if Claude's noticing, yeah. but have you noticed something different about Seth from when we did the radio show? Uh, no, what's that? He is the host of a three-hour show. He is so long-winded. <laughs> oh, no. This man can talk. I don't mean that as a put-down, I think. I mean, you were in a you were in a supportive role on Morning in America, but you, man, you are on a roll. You are a... Talking. No, it's you know you're what a, it is. As my wife would say, you're a talking fool. <laughs> no, you know what? But you're it is? not a fool. It's the pleasure of it's the pleasure of being on a podcast that doesn't have hard breaks. I don't have yeah, to get it true. all in. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> right. That's what it is. I know podcasts but, are great. You know, I know they're great. Law professor Amy Wax at University of Pennsylvania. You remember her? She gone? Did um, they get rid of her? She said something on my show. I can never. I will never get out of my head. 
and see if you agree on this political point. She said, we're at a point in our culture where a conservative walks into a cocktail party or dinner party where he or she doesn't know most of the people. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. Well, <laughs> conservative walks into a bar. Okay, go ahead. Maybe the joke's on us. A conservative walks into a room full of people he or she doesn't know and will not initiate a conversation on politics, assuming the room is against them. A liberal will walk into a room they don't know and will happily initiate a conversation on politics, thinking the room is with them. And I'll never get that out of my head because I think that's what you see in the hearings from the Democrats. That's what you see really in all parts of political society and culture right now, right? That the conservative just is not mainstream, shouldn't be part of the mainstream, that there is a respectable level of dialogue and political belief in this country, and it is dominated on the valence uh, that begins perhaps with Nancy Pelosi and ends with Ilan Omar. Anything to the center or right of that cannot possibly be common sense, mainstream, appropriate, or rational. That's, that's I think, where we are right now. Amy Wax is right uh, in general, but she doesn't know Mrs. Bennett. <laughs> there's always, yeah, there's always the outlier. It right. started, uh, it started, well, eight, 12, 12 years ago at Morton Kondracki's dinner party, in which uh, somehow the question of politics came up, and Mrs. Bennett said, she didn't have to say it just to the person who was making noise. I think she said it to the whole table. She said, surely none of you were voting for Obama. <laughs> something something really ambiguous like that you know she may be more irish than you right with that the girl. private fight it's a private fighter can right? anybody get it yeah. absolutely yeah. Yeah. i love that girl oh, yeah. i love that girl you're you're having great success with the show um and, I mean, show's doing well. I, yeah, I, show's doing really well. I hear well. about it. I hear echoes. Uh, it's 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 very impressive. I mean, good for you. Nothing, though, I have to tell you, warms my heart so much as when I get an email from a listener, typically not from Arizona. They listen on the podcast or whatever, and they say, I used to remember you on Bill Bennett's Morning in America. Nothing mate, warms my heart so much as that, you know? We and, had a big uh, audience. We had at least hundreds of people. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it warms my heart. You want to explain about, that? I think you ought to be made to explain that. Uh, what did, Claude may remember it better than I do. Claude, what did I? What did I say? We have thousands of people listening. You remember? Something? We were we were the ratings came out, and we were like number six in the country with yeah. two point yeah. seven five million daily listeners. And right? I can't remember the concept yeah. exactly. And then, yeah. uh, like uh, a week later, you said, "Well, we can't." Ignore our listeners. I mean, we have literally hundreds, maybe thousands. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, the morning brain. Also, I'm math addled, as you know. You always have to add a couple zeros to everything I say. <laughs> but it warms my heart. It warms my heart because I worry about, you know, I do worry about whether you do something or try and do something important and it just goes into the ether and is forgotten. And it dawned on me that when it, when it's done well, it lasts and it has hold and people still remember and it makes everything we do worthwhile you what's know? real it endures Plato Plato what's real endures uh, and on that yeah. politics thing you made me think of uh, something else about you know how pl pol politics is part of everything uh, and, and yeah. what we need to do is remember Samuel Johnson I believe how small of all that human hearts endure that part which kings or courts can cause or cure yeah yeah um, and that's yeah. a harry jaffa point too you know when his analysis of king lear it's you know it's got to do with royalty and laws and all that but uh you know what torments us is not usually governments and laws and courts but uh torments of life which are you know internal and complicated and interpersonal and you know, and, and, and otherwise. How small of all that human hearts endure that part which laws or kings can cause or cure. That's what it is, not courts. Laws or kings can cause or cure. Do we have time for me to ask you a question? Yeah. Sports. If it's Other thing sports I've, or food. I've kind of been, no, well, sort of politics, really. <laughs> Culture, I guess, now. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. There becomes this conventional wisdom 
uh, take any issue, uh, take Donald Trump and white supremacy, that he's never denounced white supremacy, or that he called the coronavirus a hoax. And it gets repeated, it gets repeated by Amy Klobuchar, it gets repeated by Wolf Blitzer, it gets repeated everywhere. And it's just manifestly not true. And, you know, we can play 10 minutes of audio of Donald Trump denouncing white supremacists, and it won't matter. It's just harder to be a conservative than a liberal. It's harder to be a conservative than a leftist, isn't it? Because we're always pushing. We're always trying to correct the record. We're always trying to we're do the fact-checking that fact-checkers won't do. We're on defense. That's a disadvantage we're at, right? Yeah, we're always, even as much as your axiom is true, you're either on offense or defense and we should run with the football every chance we get, we're always still, no matter what, on defense, aren't we? Uh, most of the time. And that's because yeah. of uh, the truth of the old axiom, which is, uh, let's make a deal. I'll give you, you know, the government and the courts uh, and, uh, you know, the legislatures. Uh, you give me the you give me the schools, the, the media, and the foundations. Uh, remember that wonderful book, Submission. I keep mentioning it by this French guy. It's about uh, the radical Islamic takeover of France. And when they get power... Ruben's worried they're going to take over the entire government, and what they take over first is the Ministry of Education. Yeah. Give us the schools. Yeah. Give us the schools. How, how do we get to a situation that. where the schools are closed, kids are being deprived the social development, obviously the academic development, forget math for a year, you may never get it back, um, all the things they need to be doing at school, the interaction, uh, and teachers are insisting to Nancy Pelosi that they be given enormous sums of money. Um, you know, they haven't been teaching, you know, in the classroom since March or April, and they're not teaching this fall, maybe not next spring, because of this this hoax, this fraud that'll so endanger students. Um, you know, ha, ha, you know, this is chutzpah, I guess. Oh, by the way, talk about the cultural difference. How's this? The 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 Democrats are so left that did you see what Nancy Pelosi said to Wolf Blitzer yesterday? I did, and I made this point. The Democrats are so far left that Nancy Pelosi thinks CNN is doing the Republicans' bidding. Yeah, she thinks CNN it's a, she isn't thinks left wing enough for them. It's a Republican uh, redoubt, yeah, that the CNN yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen anything on CNN like that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I played most of that 10-minute audio or so for the audience. Um, it was probably Wolf Blitzer's best moment ever. I was surprised, quite frankly, to see him stand up to her so calmly as he did. I was also surprised to see her so unwound. Um, but I think she is. I think she is unwound. But there was the tell. You're right. She said she said the quiet part out loud when she said, "You're doing the Republicans' bidding." And I thought, "Oh boy, we, you know, if, if that, that's how far left the Democratic Party is, they think CNN is a Republican redoubt." I, I have. Uh, to, I, I, have- I don't. I have yeah, to make an aside here to Claude again a comment about you and okay. your evolution, which is <laughs> I haven't asked you a question or a reference or a quote that you are not fully aware of more than I and are able to fill in all the blanks. Wow. So I know you were my producer, but who the hell is your producer? Because he's better than my producer was. <laughs> Do you know what my producer does? Do you know what my producer does? Does the audience understand that we do this? That I'm (laughs) kidding. They They do. do, do. Who the hell is feeding you? You didn't feed me this stuff. Do you you know what my producer does? He's a great guy. You've you've talked to him on the phone, Bill Davidson. That's Bill. He does the math for you. I know that. He counts for you. He's my math guy and sports guy. He will do. He will come in once a week and quote things from this very podcast to me. He is an assiduous listener to this podcast. He's a big fan of it, and he'll say, "Now I heard Doctor Bennett is always Doctor Bennett to you. No, you're always Doctor Bennett to him." He says, "Now I heard Doctor Bennett say something that I've heard you say versions of. Did he get it from you or did you get it from him?" And I said, "Well, let me hear it, and I'll tell you." But the funny <laughs> thing is. He is one of your most loyal listeners, and he is he's a great man. You know, there's no nothing like a great producer. You've had good producers. You've had great producers. Claude is the best you've ever had, and it makes a difference. Um, it makes a difference, right? Claude's a little weak on the Catholic issue. That's the only problem. <laughs> Claude had the best line on the Catholic issue ever. Let's hear it. Ever. Did I? Well, yeah. Do you remember this, Claude? I do. I had left, I had left the show. 
because I was on my way packing to Phoenix and I came by to say goodbye. And I walked in in the middle of your show and you were raising some questions with some caller about Catholic doctrine. And not to bother you, I went to Claude, who was, you know, your producer in the studio engineering the show. And I said, we're doing Catholicism again. And he goes, yes, we are. I said, God, there's a lot of questions about Catholicism on this show. And Claude said, yep. And most of them come from Dr. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I wasn't part of the Scalia family here or the Amy Coney Barrett right. family, you know. Seth, it's wonderful yeah. to talk to you. And um, you bet you expressed something. I, I want you to fill it in a lot, a little bit if you want. The country and your worry. Uh, you've heard me on this. I'd say, you know, we go through hard times. We've been through worse. But the American capacity for self-renewal, you know, the antibodies kick in. You've heard my little routine on that. Are they kicking in? Um, you know, Gary Bauer had a comment. And, uh, you know, Gary worked for me at education. But we were at a little dinner at the vice president's. Name dropping, sorry. But it was a series of dinners he wanted me to put on and invite people. Only had one because of his schedule. But Gary said, you know, we're all, many of us around this table are very pleased with Donald Trump. We think he's holding back the tide, but, you know, he can only have two terms. Um, I, I see, you know, just one comment. I see, you know, because we mentioned this earlier, I see a good bench. I see some very good people coming. I, I wish I could say I see some good, really good Democrats coming, but I, I don't see the kind of Democrats I, you know, used to support and even vote for or was introduced by, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan. But, but what's your view? What's your forecast? Not, you know, not necessarily for this election or the next one, but for the country. More worried than you've I'm ever worried. been? More yeah, worried than I'm ever. more worried than that. Yeah, I'm really worried. And I'm worried because of the schools, as you pointed out. Yeah. Alan Gelso's thesis, this is like the Civil War. Don, I mean, you know, there used to be an expression that this isn't your father's or grandfather's Democratic Party. And I agree with that. I worry that it might be your great-great-grandfather's Democratic Party and their reading of history, you know, their reading of history to see that the entire founding of our country was based on inimical uh, beliefs, philosophies, and, uh, and, 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 and judgments rather than good ones. And that's, that seems to be the product of two generations of the schools running down America tells me those antibodies we relied on that you were talking about may not be there anymore, Bill. I'm really worried about that. And when people say, well, the only way to solve it is to reelect Donald Trump, I don't know that that does it. I just don't know that that does no, it. No, no. Regeneration course, comes from within. Regeneration comes from within. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we have to reelect him. I can't. It'll say something awfully ugly about this country. I don't want to believe if he loses. So we have to reelect him. But Gary's right. And I think until we start taking over school boards, we are doomed. And when people call my show, as they call you and email you, what can I do? What can I do? I only have one answer anymore, and it's run for school boards. That's my only answer. Run for school board. And when they say why, what do you say? Well, I, I, I usually go into, into some kind of talk that you would give or that I would learn from you that, um, that the schools um, are where the, the school boards are where the curricula is decided. And curricula has been idly now for two generations exclusively, nearly exclusively, I should say, nearly exclusively an anti-American narrative that trains students either to be aliens in a country they don't know or to hate this country. And when Ronald Reagan said it just takes one generation to lose freedom, I think he meant it. And I think we should take that seriously because we're at about two now. Yeah, no, it's a... Fair point. Plato is the quote. You know, you've heard me. It's not really Plato's quote. It's George Will rendering Plato. It was George Will's essay. He, he, he summarized Plato by saying, Plato believed the two most important questions of a society in the end are who gets to teach the children and what do they teach them. And so I think, uh, I think, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, yeah. Well, I have a, a thing happened just two days ago that struck me. Um, just a little aside in the conversation. 
Jim Dobson. You remember Jim? Everybody remembers Jim. Sure. Yeah. He's yeah. he's still he's still doing his thing. Uh, not to focus on the family, but a, a different organization. Can't think of the name. Called to ask my permission to rerun a interview we did maybe twenty years ago. He said because I've been listening to the old interviews. He said, and I I mostly my show now I, I rerun a lot of them. Um, and he said this maybe fifteen twenty years ago. I'll get the exact date. He said, but it's very relevant today, and I'd like to. I said, sure. You know, he said, you want to hear it before I, I said, no, no, I'm fine. He said, well, you talk about a lot of things and you talk about your worries that, you know, people are, don't know this, they don't know that. And they're indifferent to the framers. And I stuck on that phrase. Maybe you can guess why I said, well, there you go, Jim, 15 to 20 years ago, the worry was we were indifferent to the framers. Now we're taking down their statues. Now, and we've gone from indifference to animosity to antipathy. What's the limbo song? How low can you go? You know, and you know when it's does a it, really good point. When does this yeah. end? Where does it end? So, well, it's a really good point. You know, Abraham Lincoln in his electric chord speech taught, taught tried to teach us what connects us to our founding, and it was the belief in what the founder said. Obviously, yeah. right? Yeah. The father yeah. of all moral principle, he called it. Um, today, uh, put it on the show yesterday, we don't study those speeches anymore. Instead, we tear down Abraham Lincoln's statue, tear down Abraham Lincoln. Um, that's a great, that's a great insight you and Jim Dobson had. We went from indifference to destruction. Where does that end? That's why I guess I'm so worried. I can't put my finger on it, but I am worried. All right. Well, give us something happy to close with here at the end. What encourages me is that there are a lot of people that don't want to give up and that there still is a yeah. lot of hope. Yeah. There still is a lot of energy and there still is a lot of confidence. And when people in other countries rise up against their tyrants with American iconography, and when yeah. we still have an immigration problem and an illegal immigration problem, it tells me that people around the world may perhaps, perhaps like Alexis de Tocqueville, the Marquis de Lafayette, or others throughout history outside this country, maybe understand us better than so many of us understand ourselves. Yeah. And when there's that kind of confidence in our country and, and, and our, our ideals, I'm buoyed. I'm buoyed by that. It's your point about the cocktail party, because I've often said when they moved to North Carolina, uh, maybe, you know, North Carolina shapes them more than Massachusetts shapes North Carolina. But it isn't true. Massachusetts, people coming down make uh, North Carolina less red. And same in Arizona because of your cocktail party. Because they come down with, all that, ju- come down with all that liberal confidence, party. all that liberal hubris. And conservatives are more every, polite. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. I, I think the smartest thesis on this was Michael Barone's book, Hard America versus Soft America. You remember that thesis? And he thought, you know, Hard America, the America of um, standards, the America of winning and losing, the America of right and wrong, the America that trains under live fire would win out over Soft America, the America of feelings, the America of awards for showing up. You look what's going around in this country. Even now, our military academies, and they sound much more like sociology departments at Harvard than they do what you used to think of as a military academy. I'm really worried about the power of the left here. They've taken over institutions that I never thought they could, and they've taken over states I never thought they could. And I think there's a reaction back now. Our friend Chuck Wexler tells me that, but police departments, too, where I thought commissioners were not sounding like cops. They were sounding like social workers. But I think they're they're back to sounding like cops now because they've been so brutally and viciously attacked uh, as a as a group. There was, yeah, no, I I agree with you. Um, I, yes, I, I fully agree with you and Chuck. There was a um, at the initial start of the riots. I remember seeing uh, one scene in Los Angeles where a group of National Guardsmen took a knee. Uh, to, uh, in support of the of the protesters, and I remember someone on Twitter—I don't remember who—said, 
China invade now. Yeah. And, um, and, and that, that, that was Michael Barone all over again, hard America, soft America. Um, and yet you're right. They did learn their lesson, didn't they? These mayors learned their lesson. Some of them, not all of them, some of them, uh, and the police learned their lesson. Some of them, not all of them. Okay. Uh, tremendous, or, or, tremendous cost though, at a tremendous cost. We've lost an awful lot. You know, we've lost an awful lot, and it was unnecessary. Churchill called World War II the unnecessary war. This was all unnecessary, too. Yeah, this was yeah. all unnecessary. All right, work, pray, join the school board. Okay, we got the message. Vote. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Seth. Congratulations to all you've done, all, you, all your work. It's wonderful. God bless you all. Stay Bye. strong. Bye. All right, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week.